Yeah, I've got time for another one. So here we go. I'm very interested in human universals, universals that transcend time, place. You know, they when different people in different times and places either come to the same conclusions, hold the same beliefs, or do the same things. And there are some that are just obvious. They're a byproduct of our biology. Like, you're not much of a sociologist because you're like, it, it turns out that everybody in the entire world throughout history eats food. Did you know that people like to sit down and eat food together? And they've always done that? Did you know that people have a place that they designate to go to the bathroom so they don't have to do it near where they eat? You know, it's just that kind of stuff that's pretty obvious. I mean, it's interesting in its own right. Even that sort of common, mundane, obvious stuff is interesting in its own right. But it's largely a biological byproduct rather than something that exists somewhere else in the human experience that is less obvious. And the one that I always come back to, to me, that proves a certain degree of human universality is eschatology, which is apocalypse, the end. The idea of the world ending for one reason or another. And the fact that eschatology, some sort of eschaton, which would be an actual event that signifies the end of the world. The fact that eschaton is such a a common part of the human story that we tell ourselves time and time again, and a lot of these have a religious, spiritual, or mythological basis. You know, when we think about the book of Revelation, uh, Ragnarok, the end of the Kali Yuga, We, you know, I mean, there's more. It's endless, really. We can keep finding them. They always seem to exist one way or another. There always seems to be a story of apocalypse. And sometimes it signifies the end of one phase and the beginning of another, which is what the end of the Kali Yuga is, as well as Ragnarok. There's a rebirth after Ragnarok. But we just see that this actual final event, usually divine, a final divine event. It's more than just the end of our earthly plane. It's somehow provoked or interconnected with something divine that is beyond this world too. And I don't know about the Mayans, you know, the obvious one that people would talked about for years, like 2012. Well, in 2012, we're going to see whether or not the Mayans were right. And I've never really looked into that. I've always been a little bored and put off by the whole Mayan thing. I think I probably just don't like the people who talk about it. Uh, But uh, I don't know how, because I've heard before, like, oh, the calendar goes to 2012. And is it because they were too lazy to keep listing later years? Was 2012 the year that they decided to stop listing future years? Or was that actually a year that they believed would coincide with the end of the world, with some sort of eschatological event? And I don't know. I've never really read about it. I don't know what people think. I don't know if there's some sort of Mayan mythology that backs up the idea that they believed in an apocalyptic event 
I mean, it seems the way people talk about it, it seems like there must be something more than just the last year they wrote down was 2012. It seems like there must be some information uh, that people have found in either Mayan spirituality or mythology that shows that they believed in apocalypse. I don't know, but that would be yet another example. And there are many more. And we have one now, you know, and I think this one is very important to acknowledge as part of this eschatological lineage, which is climate change or global warming, where it's a product of secular thinking. It's scientists have determined that our world is heating up, the ice caps are melting, the the forests are burning, and we have a limited amount of time, and we must correct our sinful behavior if we want to prevent all-out apocalypse in our lifetime. And the science is there. The science shows that the world is going to end if we don't repent. And people don't recognize it as part of the lineage that I'm talking about because it's not seen as a spiritual event. It's not seen as a spiritual outcome. It's not seen as a part of religion or mythology, which people talk snidely about. You know, you think about people like Bill Maher, who I like. You know, I like Bill Maher. I always have. He's, he's smug. He's an asshole. But I've always liked Bill Maher. I, don't, I certainly don't agree with him on many things. But as a public figure, he's always been committed to free speech. And I think he would be cooler. I think I would think Bill Maher was even cooler if he was from a younger generation. And I think I would probably see eye to eye with him more often if he was a little bit younger. Because he's from that generation that thought atheism was really cool. Because he was raised in a, you know, a constricted Catholic environment. It's like George Carlin syndrome, where I love George Carlin, but if you watch George Carlin now, it can be obnoxious because it's no different than what you'll read on like Reddit. You know, it's no different than something you'll just encounter from some random liberal these days. But that said, it doesn't change the fact that George Carlin was a very funny guy. I love George Carlin, but it's just that in today's climate, no pun intended, in today's changing climate, it's just there are a lot of people who are kind of like, what's up with religion, man? They believe, if you, in the book of Revelations, they believe uh, the end of the world is going to happen in our lifetime. And they believe that Jesus is going to come back and the Antichrist is going to reveal himself. And the end of the world is going to happen and only the good people are going to go to heaven. Christian much? Hey, Christian much, (laughs) you know, like that sort of smug outlook. And for someone who's part of an older generation like Bill Maher, I understand why that sort of total opposition to religion and that sort of new atheist mindset was so attractive to them. I totally understand. But I think my generation was led a different way. And it's no surprise that my generation has become more spiritual in a number of different ways. Not just these new Catholics and new Christians, which I'm not sure how I feel about. Even though I read the Bible and a certain amount of Christianity has made its way into my life, and I feel that some of it was already there, you know, it's part of it is recognizing the 
cultural influence of Christianity that already made its way into my life without me realizing it or wanting to accept it. And then also recognizing that there is value to what's available in the Bible. There is value to what's available in Christian mysticism, for that matter. And some people in my generation who were raised in otherwise secular households have realized that. And there's a large number of young men who have converted to Catholicism. I actually heard about an old friend of mine just recently. I found out he was being, not baptized, I'm trying to think of the word, confirmed. And he had already been, you know, he was already into Christianity. He was a guy who used to make noise music and... uh, was pretty out there, did a lot of drugs and that kind of thing, but he has become a lot more conservative over the last 10, 15 years, and uh, I found out that he was recently confirmed. And that's a trend. And when I say a trend, I don't mean that in a negative way, like, oh, it's a trend. I just mean that it seems to be something in my generation where you have a lot of younger girls who have gone, and younger by, I mean, like millennial or younger, who are very deep into this new-agey, astrological, candle lighting. Uh, You know, a lot of girls will talk about, on the solstice, it's like they'll post their little altars on Instagram and things like that. And while there was a little bit of that with the baby boomers, you know, a lot of that with the baby boomers, people were in the 1960s and 70s got very interested in uh, general spirituality. A lot of people were interested in Buddhism, astrology, these sort of safe, but nonetheless spiritual leanings. And you see that a lot, though, with my generation, one way or another. I mean, there's a lot of girls who call themselves witches today. There's a lot of girls who are self-proclaimed witches. And uh, so you see that a lot. But the conservative side of that is guys who I think otherwise would not have ever been fundamentalist or who never would have been Christians by their own choice if they were if they came of age in generation X or in the baby boomer generation I think they've found it because they recognized a need for something and like I was saying in my own life like maybe they recognized that the influence was already there whether they like it or not and so if the influence is there whether you like it or not you might as well like it right uh, but with those like Bill Maher I mean the reason I brought him up is because I remember him on his show years ago, probably during the George Bush era. It was definitely during the George Bush era where he made he made some statement where he's like, this percentage of, this is how Bill Maher sounds, this percentage of Christians believes that the end of the world is going to come in our lifetime. And, you know, it, it, he acted like, oh, look at these idiots. Look at these stupid idiots who think that the end of the world is going to happen to our lifetime and if you don't uh, if you don't get born again you're going to be left behind there's a famous christian book series called left behind that deals with this very subject but uh yeah bill maher and people like that the sort of new atheists in particular there's this very smug attitude like can you believe that these christians think the apocalypse is going to happen during our lifetime. These people are running the government. 
These people are running the government. They think the apocalypse is going to happen during our lifetime. You know, that attitude is very common and is still common. People look at born-again Christians, just fundamentalist Christians, who think the apocalypse is going to happen, who think the events in the book of Revelation are going to happen. And then you end up with this secular world where science is put on a pedestal. Scientists and doctors have become the priest class. They're almost beyond question. You can't question them. He's a scientist. You're gonna, we got the experts. Hey, listen. Who am I to question the experts? So you have you have scientists, people in the medical field, who have become this new priest class. And what do people believe in? They believe that the end of the world is going to come potentially in our lifetime. They believe that the climate is going to heat up. They believe that climate change is going to escalate, that is escalating. And you look at that word, escalating, what does that sound like? Eschaton. Eschatology. I don't know if those share a root, but it is interesting. They probably do. They must. They must share a similar root. Escalate. Eschaton. Because uh, you think about what an eschaton is, and that's the end of the world escalating. The world escalating to the end of the world. Escalating to the end of the world. But you think about that, and even in this highly secular, secularized world where people smugly dismiss religion, they smugly dismiss all of these religious and mythological prophecies. Oh, Ragnarok? See, I think I think Vikings are cool. I think Vikings are real cool, but as far as Norse mythology goes, it's just mythology, dude. Ragnarok? Valhalla? You actually believe in Valhalla? You know, people love that stuff. People love Thor. People love Vikings. They love the imagery of it. But nobody believes in actual you know, the actual events of Norse mythology playing out. There's very little spirituality in that, you know. I mean, maybe some people who are into Odinism and Asatru actually do believe in some of that, but it doesn't get taken nearly as seriously as other ideas. But people, point being is people are very dismissive of religious apocalypse, But meanwhile, as the world has become more secular and we've developed this new priest class, what are those priests telling us? They're telling us the end of the world is imminent, and it's a result of our behavior. We have sinned, and as a result, apocalypse is imminent. And you must change your behavior now, immediately. You must be born again immediately, or... You're going to bring about the end of the world. It's your fault, baby. Climate change, it's your fault, baby. How does it feel to, to be uh, one of the people who destroyed the world? How does it feel to be one of the motherfuckers who end the wor- ended the world, huh? Huh? Guess what? I'm one, too. <laughs> Got a finger pointed at you and a finger pointed at myself. And, you know, we can't avoid it. It's it's original sin. It's one of the many original sins that the secular world has invented. Because that's the thing, is that when you shut an idea out, chances are you will reinvent it. And if it is one of these human universals like eschatology, 
you will reinvent it, but without the wisdom that went along with the previous incarnations of that idea. So when you say apocalypse, Ragnarok, end of the Kali Yuga, that's just a bunch of uh, mumba jumba. All that mumba jumba, who cares? What happens when you dismiss that, but then reinvent that idea yourself in the form of climate change or global warming is you have none of the wisdom that people developed to go along with those previous beliefs. It's also the reason that free speech is a a major issue, because when you shut an idea out, when you don't let people be Nazis, what ends up happening is they are going to reinvent Nazism and it's going to be way more potent. It's going to look different, it's going to sound different, but it's going to be way more potent, and it's going to be new. And because it's going to be new, because it's not going to be branded with a swastika, which everybody knows represents something negative, you know, because it's not going to be branded that way, somebody is going to reinvent it, it's going to be more attractive to a broader range of people who would have rejected the weird subculture of neo-Nazism, And then on top of that, they're not going to have any wisdom to balance them out with. They're not going to have the wisdom that says, hey, when we did this before, it didn't work. Because it's not going to be that thing that didn't work. Even though it will be a reinvention of that thing, they're going to they're not going to get put into play. It's it's not going to get put into context as a failed exercise. It's going to be something, it's going to be the same ideas, but rebranded, reinvented by a whole new group of people who don't see it as that same thing. And that's what happens when you censor. That's what happens when you cut things out. That's also what happens when you don't see your secular beliefs as part of the same lineage that created religious, spiritual, and mythological beliefs to think that, oh, no, 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 we understand, we get it. It took us this long. It took humanity this long, but we now get it. We're right now. We weren't right then. All those previous generations of amazing human beings, they were not right. They were wrong. We're part of the first generation that got it right because we got the scientists, baby. Hey, baby, uh, I'm from the first generation to get it right. We got the scientists on our side. And uh, all those people got it wrong. It's, uh, their version of apocalypse was wrong. Our version of apocalypse is right. And they might be right. I am not a climate change denier. I'm not a, a global warming denier. And joking about it this way would make some uptight person think I am. Somebody who hears me talking the way I talk about this stuff, they would think, oh, see, you're a denier. Because you have a sense of humor about it, because you are critical of the religion that has formed around science and its apocalyptic theory, climate change, you must not believe in it. I believe in the apocalypse. I wholeheartedly believe in the apocalypse in all of its many forms. And I see climate change as part of the lineage of eschatology that humans have always found, the conclusion that humans have always come to, which is that the world's going to end, baby. See, I'm not denying anything. But I'm recognizing that this is a, a universal human conclusion. 
No matter how you come to that conclusion, it's the same conclusion. And to think that your idea is somehow better because science aided the discovery of it, science led you to believe it's true, opposed to scripture, you know, that's what I'm opposed to. You have to see these things as part of the same lineage. And Bill Maher cracking wise about how fundamentalist born-again Christians believe the book of Revelations is going to play out in their lifetime is equal to people believing that the end of the world via climate change is going to happen in our lifetime too. And I just saw a headline the other day, and I feel like I see these headlines every two weeks, but they say, we've now reached the point of no return. We've now reached the point of no return. Saw a headline, it was a matter of days ago, in fact. I saw a headline that says, we've now reached the point of no return with regard to climate change. But that's not used to doom you into nihilism. When you see statements like that from scientists or, or newspapers that are speaking on behalf of scientists, when they say, we've reached a point of no return, they're not saying, so do nothing. Now it doesn't matter. Because we've reached, the, and, and the thing that's stupid is that that's kind of what they're encouraging people to think. By saying we've reached the point of no return, that inspires nihilism in people like, oh, it doesn't matter what we do now because it's going to happen anyway. But what they're really trying to tell you is we've reached the point of no return, but keep repenting. We have to keep repenting to salvage what we can. And I'm, I'm, I support that. Believe it or not, I'm an environmentalist. I'm not perfect. I use paper towels. I drive a car. You know, I'm certainly imperfect. I'm not without sin but I'm very environmentally conscious. The only footprint I leave behind is a, a size 11 shoe. You know, I don't know what my carbon footprint is. I don't know. I don't know how, how huge, I don't know how sprawling my carbon footprint is, but I know that I got a size 11 shoe. And I don't think I leave much more than that behind me as far as a modern human being goes. But that said, you know, I don't necessarily buy into this narrative. I don't necessarily buy into the way that our secular religion has created this narrative of impending apocalypse and that it's any different than the many countless other ways that we've projected apocalypse one way or another, whether it's a divine event, whether it's the end of the world, I don't know. I mean, I know that the earth is very resilient. I know that the earth is resilient. And I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't rule out the possibility of some kind of, uh, I wouldn't rule out the possibility of some kind of Ragnarok rebirth. Or that climate change simply marks the end of one phase before another phase begins again. Something like the Yugas. I wouldn't rule that out because I don't know, you know, and we've theorized that there were previous extinction events, previous events that wiped out huge, uh, huge amounts of life on this planet. I've heard some incredible stories, stuff that does sound biblical, like sheets of lightning just saturating the earth, just sheets of lightning hitting the earth at the same time and killing everything. You know, there's the dinosaurs. 
but we don't know that all life is eliminated. And with our belief in evolution, we don't know that some life can't adapt to even the most adverse circumstances. So we really don't know if some form of rebirth is or isn't possible, even if there is some sort of apocalypse or extinction event. Not that we should encourage it. I don't believe in encouraging an apocalypse. But what this, what this gets into, and when I was talking about wisdom a minute ago, how when we reinvent these ideas in our own narrow context to think like, oh, no, this is different. My version of apocalypse is different because uh, we, de- we determined that it's going to happen via calculations from the scientific priest class. And you got to listen to them just like you got to listen to the priest at church. You got to listen to our scientific priest class. You know, in the same way that we think it's different because we found this information allegedly in some kind of different way, we then ignore the wisdom that goes along, the, the spiritual wisdom that goes along with these other versions of apocalypse and the acceptance of it. You know, accepting the inevitability of apocalypse doesn't mean encouraging apocalypse. You can accept that we will be wiped out without encouraging or wanting it or denying it. And life is funny in that way. It very much is a game where there's this, it's like the first level of life is just kind of accepting that you are alive and wanting to be alive because there are a lot of things in life that can tell you, you don't really want to be alive, do you? Because it sucks. Oh, there's a bunch of things that suck. You're going to experience pain and horror. And so the first step of life seems to be just accepting that life is a blessing, accepting that it is a privilege to be a creature who has a soul and consciousness and gets to live through this life pain or pleasure or something in between, just accepting that it is a privilege to be alive seems to be the first stage to me. And that also is sometimes the longest. And once you beat that level, the next one is accepting death. It's accepting that you will die. It's accepting that people you know will die. And that's a very difficult one that many people struggle to accept even when they're dying. But many people accept it. Many people say, okay, that's an inevitability. I know that I'm going to die. I know that everybody I know is going to die. I don't know who is going to die first. But the fact that death is inevitable in my little world, that my world will end, that itself is a form of accepting the apocalypse. Because in an egotistical way, from an egotistical perspective, that is your world. That's you. Everything that you see is your world. Everybody that you know is your world. And if those people are going to die, if you are going to die, that's the end of the world. I mean, some people feel that way about their hometowns. Like, my hometown is so fundamentally different from the town that I grew up in that it feels like that place no longer exists. That's a form of apocalypse, too. It's accepting change. It's not just accepting death. It's a form of accepting change because something that existed is so fundamentally different that it doesn't seem to be the same thing it was anymore. And so we have to accept that about ourselves. We have to accept that about the things around us. And you can be hung up on that your entire life. There are people out there who, 20 years later after a restaurant closed and was replaced by you know, 
a McDonald's, some like hole in the wall restaurant they loved their entire life closed and it was replaced by a McDonald's, which they hate. And 20 years later, there's somebody who's like, I can't drive by that strip mall anymore without still missing uh, the old diner. I just, I can't, they, they just never got over it. And I feel that way about things. There are things where I'm like, yeah, it, it sucks that that thing changed. And that's a form of apocalypse. So we experience all of these micro apocalypses in the form of change. And that leads us up to the biggest change of all, which is the fact that we die. We go from life to no life to whatever's beyond that. I don't know, but we have to accept that. So you can, and then people do accept that. And and one of the ways that people accept that is through spirituality, is through religion. Um, I mean, some people accept it through the absence some people are atheists and they say the light just goes off and that's it. Oh, you listen to these Christians who think that your soul goes to heaven or hell. Yeah, well, I know I get to be I'm right. I'm right because I know there's nothing. You, know, you have people like that. I guess what you you think, you know, what's going to happen. No, you don't know what's going to happen. I know what's going to happen. And that's that the light just turns off and there's nothing. There's, just, there's nothing but black. You just see a big black nothing. It's like it's like unplugging a toaster. Um, but uh, I make a lot of cheap shots at that way of thinking. I know I have to. I just feel that I have to. <laughs> um, but uh you know, so it's like you can accept death one way or another, whether you really, whether you believe your soul goes somewhere else or whether you believe that it comes back to the earth, whether you believe that a light just goes out and never gets turned back on and there's truly nothing, whether you just em- enter emptiness again, you know, it doesn't really make a difference. All of these are ways of accepting the inevitability of death. And that's the next level. Like accepting life is the first level, then accepting death is the next level. But then there's, turns out, even if you've accepted life and accepted death, there's another level that you have to learn to deal with, which is accepting the fact that not just you, not just individuals die, that this whole thing could die. It's accepting planetary death. It's accepting that all life on this planet could die forever. And that's hard for people to deal with. No matter how death positive you are, no matter, you know, how many books you read about accepting death and how much you, you know, no matter how many skull pins you put on the lapel of your jacket, you have to deal with this other level of death, which is planetary death, the death of all life forever. And that seems to be what people are struggling with, with climate change. That's what people struggle with, with apocalypse. It's not that you shouldn't do what you can to prevent the escalation of an apocalyptic event. It's that you have to accept the possibility that it might happen anyway. And that's very difficult for people to accept that. What do you mean it's all over? What do you mean there's no posterity? You know, that's the next step. And that's the, the hardest one for us right now. And it's actually, it's very sweet. You know, it's very sweet of us to think that way. It's, it's very nice. It's kind because it's not very egotistical. I mean, sometimes it is. I mean, there are certainly some people out there who think, I don't want the world to end because 
all those songs I leave behind, all those paintings I leave behind, all of those Twitter posts I leave behind are never going to be read by future people. Nobody's going to remember me. I mean, there's certainly ego attached to fear of eschaton, fear of apocalypse, fear of climate change. There's certainly ego attached to that because you think there's no, there's, there's not going to be any people to look back and remember me. And you're lucky if that happens anyway. You're lucky if your great-grandchildren even know what your name was, let alone any details about you. Maybe you'll pass along some jewelry. I don't know. But you're lucky if, if your great-grandchildren even remember your name. So the idea of other people remembering you, unless you're one of the most famous people in history, is pretty slim. But there's a non-egotistical way of seeing it, too, which is the idea that, like, I just want other people to be able to live life and experience this incredible phenomenon. And that's where everybody should be coming from when they fear apocalypse. That's very kind-hearted. That's very loving to care about people who don't even exist yet. It's one thing to love everybody you know, to love everybody in the world right now. That's hard enough to do. But the idea of loving people who don't even exist yet and wanting the world to exist for them to experience, although it does make an assumption, it makes an assumption that this is the only world they could potentially have whistled. Uh, every once in a while I'll say something and I whistle. Um, whistle through my teeth. Uh, but uh, it just totally distracted me. See, I don't even know how to whistle on my own. I never learned how to whistle. Two things I don't know how to do. I don't know how to whistle. I don't know how to ride a bike. Never learned how to do either of those. Uh, but uh, I did learn how to cope with apocalypse. I did learn how to accept the inevitability of apocalypse. So while I might not know how to whistle on command, I might not know how to ride a bicycle, I feel that I have a great asset in that I've accepted the inevitability of apocalypse under its various names through its different lineages. And I don't enjoy the idea of apocalypse, although a little bit. Maybe I do enjoy it a little bit, uh, which I'll get into. I'll get into the, the sort of... Uh, I'll just get into it now since I'm talking about it. But the part about apocalypse that I do enjoy is to be the last group of humans would be such a high honor. Like I ran into a guy about a year, year and a half ago that I used to play music with. We're not friends really. Like we get along. Like he always says hi to me if we see each other and we catch up, but we're not, we don't call each other and hang out or anything like that. We're just very different people, but we were just catching up. I ran into him downtown and he was saying, I don't remember how it even came up, but somehow it came up. They're like, the world's really fucked up which I don't know if I really believe, but just that's kind of what came up. And I, and this is before Corona Vi. This is before any of this. This is before 2020. Cause I don't see 2020 as, as any more fucked up than anything else. And that's not just me being defiant. You know, I think everything has been going on. Everything we're experiencing now has been going on. We might just be seeing it a little clearer right now. Um, but, uh, anyway, so this is like 2019 summer of 2019 and we were just talking like, Oh, and like I said to him though, I said, 
you know, yeah, things are really fucked up, but would you, would you have it any other way? Like, would you not want to be one of the people who's alive right now experiencing things when they're really fucked up? Like, would you rather have somebody else in your place? And I didn't say it to him like that, but that was the gist of what I said. I was just like, wouldn't you rather be one of the people who's alive to see things get fucked up? And he, of course, like left right after that, which is pretty much just my my all of my interactions with this guy boil down to that. It always ends up with me going on about something. Not really. It's not like I burden. It's not like I burden the guy and like go on up to him a lot. But just all of our interactions boil to him just kind of escaping at some point. But I was just saying to him. I mean, what I was saying to him about that is the same for what I'm saying here, which is that wouldn't you rather be part of the generation that experiences the end of the world? And not in an egotistical way where it's like, yeah, I'm the last man. I get to be the last man. I don't even mean it in that sense, but on a your own experience level, on an, on an experiential level, wouldn't you want to participate in the phenomenon to literally end all phenomena, at least the phenomena that you know and interact with? Wouldn't you want to experience that if you had the option? Because the pain is going to be short, and the pain, it turns out the pain that you will personally experience during an apocalyptic event is something you can experience even when the apocalypse isn't going on. You can still die and feel death in the same painful way during the best of times as in the worst of times. The same exact pain can happen to you. You can die in the same exact way. You can die via hellfire. You can be electrocuted. You can be stabbed. You can die a slow, excruciating death, even in a utopia. So the actual pain you'll experience, and the pain you'll experience in the apocalypse, if it is as simple as a giant meteor landing on you, that doesn't sound too bad at all. That sounds actually a lot less painful than what you might potentially experience in your normal life, even in the best of times. So you shouldn't be afraid of the pain. I mean, some of what people are afraid of is continuing to live after a catastrophic apocalyptic event. Some people don't want to live on a Mad Max desert planet. Um, They don't want to live in some post-apocalyptic hellscape But if you're still alive living in a post-apocalyptic hellscape, did the apocalypse really happen? Because if you're still alive, if there's still life on Earth, if there's still some kind of world to live in, does that really count as an apocalypse? Or is that just a very, 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 very bad catastrophic event? And does it make a difference? I don't know. But it's funny how, at least in fiction, a lot of our ideas about the apocalypse involve survivors. It involves a world that is maybe ugly, maybe dangerous, but there's still a world to live in. Is that rebirth? Is that some sort of Ragnarok, new life grows from the blackened soil? Is that the phase after the Kali Yuga? I don't know. Is that the next Yuga? I don't know what that is, but I keep hitting the mic here. Keep hitting the mic. But the fact that a lot of our fiction surrounding apocalypse and post-apocalypse involves surviving. It involves life continuing, even in some diminished capacity. So that's interesting. And I can understand fearing that. 
But if you survive, imagine that. I mean, I feel the same logic as the same logic that I was saying a second ago, where it's like, don't you want to be one of the people who experiences the apocalypse? Like, would you rather have somebody else take your place? That sounds like a jerky thing to do. Oh, I'd rather I be switched out with somebody else so they can experience the apocalypse. I mean, if I were to do that, it would be because I think they would they would get something out of it. But personally, I want to experience it if it's coming, and I don't invite it. I don't say this with any... You know, my interest isn't perverse, where I'm like, yeah, pain and horror and fire and death. You know, I don't, I'm not coming from that place at all. Like, I mean, just on a just basic curiosity level, as well as on a spiritual level, I want to experience apocalypse. And would it be an honor to be one of the last men? Sure. But that same logic applies to the post-apocalypse, where if you happen to be one of the survivors, even though you might die of dehydration, starvation, the sun might be excruciatingly painful for a time, and you might die of that, you still get to experience it. Imagine getting to be one of the people who survives the apocalypse, even if it's just temporary and horrible. That still seems like a special honor. That still seems like a life well lived to me. That's just how I feel about it. Somebody else might not feel that way. But for me, accepting the inevitability of eschaton is also accepting the possibility that you might survive through it and the world won't be the world that you love right now. It might be the world you hate. But it'll be interesting. <laughs> it'll be it'll be interesting, I'll tell you that much. Um... I'm drinking a Bang Energy drink. I got one today. It's Star Blast, the red, white, and blue. Will there be Bang Energy drink in the apocalypse? Tell me this. Tell me this, wise old sage. Will there be Bang Energy drink in the post-apocalypse? I don't know, son. But I can tell you that you might be drinking a Bang Energy drink during the apocalypse. You might be drinking a Miami Cola as the meteor hits. You might be. You might be. But uh, anyway, to get back to where I was going, just there's different levels. You know, I, I mentioned accepting life seems to be a very difficult and long level that some people never beat. They never complete that level in the game. And then once you beat that long and difficult level, and some people beat it right away. Some people are born already having completed that level. Some people are just born appreciating life and accepting the blessing and privilege that is coming coming to be, that is creation, being created, and getting to create yourself as part of this world. Some people are just born feeling that. So some people beat the level right away or are born already beating it birth itself is beating that level for some people. But for others of us, you know, it's a longer and more difficult road to accept life and embrace life. And then you beat that and then you have to contend with the fact that now you love life, but you're going to die. And what's interesting is even people who hate life often fear death. But either way, you're going to have to come to terms with death and then you do that. And then now you have to come to terms with the fact that the whole world could die. And as I was saying, some of that is your own ego where you're like, but I want to be remembered by people. 
some of it's sort of a species-wide ego where it's like, yeah, but I'm a human and, and I want humans to continue to exist because somehow my legacy is tied up with other humans still existing. Uh, and uh, for other people, though, it's totally detached from ego and it's simply, you know, I want other human beings and creatures and plant life, for that matter, to be able to enjoy or just simply... They don't even have to enjoy it. I just want life to have potential. And that's when you're completely detached from ego. You just want life to have the potential to exist on this planet. And the idea of that no longer having potential is just so sad. And it is. Even if you accept it. That's a sad thought. But you can accept that too. You know, you can accept the fact that apocalypse is a possibility, if not an inevitability. Because as above, so below. If we as individuals die, don't you think that the world could die too? Don't you think that the Earth, which is a living entity, in the same way that smaller living entities exist inside of you and on you, and you are made up of these different systems of life that have come together to form your body, You know, you can see the earth the same way, and if your body can die, the earth's body can die. It seems like an easy conclusion to make. You can't say, oh, the average life of an earth, the average life of a human male is 73 years. And the average, this is where we get very scientific, where we want to know what the lifespan of a planet is. And maybe that's a thing. Maybe the average planet does you know maybe a planet does have an average lifespan we're just not capable of measuring that but it it seems like a, a very obvious as above so below sort of issue where the systems that exist on a small scale exist on a large scale as well and in the same way that the earth i believe the earth has a similar percentage of water if not the same percentage of water as our bodies do it's very close if it's not the same And that's another example of as above, so below. And so the fact that our individual bodies can die, you know, that would suggest that the Earth can die too. And we have examples of dead planets. We have examples of planets that we believe used to have, if not life, at least a larger abundance of life. Because we don't know if there's life hidden somewhere down. You know, like I said, we don't know if life goes completely extinct Uh, You know, we don't know if there's frozen life somewhere beneath the surface of Mars or a given planet. I don't know. Turns out I don't really know what's going on beneath the surface of other planets. But, you know, accepting that the Earth could die is something you have to learn to do after you've accepted that you're going to die. And to think that the Earth will never die, that seems pretty audacious. To think that the Earth will just continue on no matter what, that seems unlikely to me. So you you really do have to accept that the death of the earth is not just a possibility, but a probability. And once you beat that level, you think you're, oh, I, I finally accepted that the earth can die too, that planets can die. Now I've beaten the game. Nope. Nope. You have not beaten the game yet. Now you have to accept the possibility that the entire universe, as you know it, could die. 
and it gets large. I won't, I won't walk you through the different levels from here. I'm still figuring them out myself. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. You know, the solar system can die. The universe can die. Everything. That's really, that's where it goes. I mean, it goes as far as you can possibly conceive. The idea is that everything could potentially experience its own apocalyptic event. Eschaton is scalable. Eschaton scales to the level of all possible life. From the smallest possible living entity, that thing can die. Everything, no matter how small, can die. And for that thing, that is an apocalyptic event. That is eschaton. That is Ragnarok. That is the final divine event. When you step on an ant, that is the apocalypse for that ant. When you destroy an anthill, because an anthill was built in your yard and you don't want ants, that is an apocalyptic event for that colony of ants. When you die, that is an apocalyptic event. When someone you love dies, again, apocalyptic. So apocalypse is scalable. And each time you accept that death, apocalypse, all of this, each, each time that you accept that this is an inevitability, it turns out there's a larger entity that will also experience some sort of eschatological fate. And so the idea beneath all of this, once you're done with that equation, however far you can take it, I mean, I, I'll, I'm going to leave it at universe. I'm not going to go farther than universe here. I'll say that the universe itself can experience apocalypse on a scale that we can't comprehend because we can't comprehend the universe, no matter what scientists try to tell you about how it started or whether it's expanding or shrinking. We can't comprehend it. But I believe that apocalypse can play out at that scale. Because from what we can see in our own world is that apocalypse is scalable. Eschaton is scalable. And what that means, the, the, the end result of that equation is that nothing is permanent. Things change, things die. I'm not telling anybody anything profound that they didn't already know. But we get caught up on the details. We get caught up on the terminology. We get caught up on phrases like climate change and who is saying it. And I don't think we should do that. I think we should recognize that this is all part of the same lineage. This is all part of the same inevitable conclusion that we as humans make. We have a sense for it. We have a sense for it, whether you're sucking on a microscope or looking through a microscope. We have a sense for it, whether we're reading scripture or passing on some oral tradition. We have a sense for it, whether we're up in the the frozen Northlands or South America. 
we inevitably have a sense for some sort of impending doom. And it's part of our storytelling. In fiction, we can't avoid it. How much fiction involves some sort of apocalyptic event? How much fiction involves some sort of worldly catastrophe? It's even something that we bring into play when we're talking about conflict, like, you know, nuclear war. It's not just that dropping a nuke on somebody is going to devastate their environment, their city. It's that we are also concerned that we're going to launch so many nukes that we cause an apocalyptic event ourselves, that we have an immediate, an imminent apocalyptic event because of these devices we've built. Through science, through the scientific process, we've developed devices that can actually ignite an apocalyptic, apocalyptic event right now. You know, the things that we believe are causing global warming and climate change are the result of scientific innovation and invention. And that's one of the criticisms I have of science is that it seems to create things that have destructive possibilities and then when humans inevitably use those things in such a way that destroys, whether it's gradual destruction or imminent destruction, science says, hey, we can't do that. You, look, you guys are doing this crazy thing with this. Where'd you get this thing? Where'd you, where'd you get this thing? Where'd you get those nukes at? Oh, I, I didn't mean for you to, uh, I didn't mean for you to use it that way. Science has this great ability, and it's not science itself, but scientists, the way that we use science. It has this amazing ability to put these things into our life that we can use however we want, often in some destructive way, and then it washes its hands of it and says, oh, I didn't mean for you to use it that way. And yeah, they have governments behind them. They have the military behind them. They have people pressuring them to develop these things. But if scientists were these sound moralists, they would simply refuse. They would accept death rather than be pressured by a military to develop some sort of invention or innovation that can destroy everything gradually or imminently. You know, scientists really were the priest class that we make them out to be. They would take a far greater stand than they've been taking as long as modern science has been existing. And in my opinion, they're all mad scientists. No, but no, I'm really not out to get scientists. I just, there's a level of hypocrisy and contradiction to them. And not all of them. Obviously, they are a, a dynamic and varied group of people. And I laugh when I hear phrases like, the scientific community thinks, like the scientific community. Everything's a goddamn community to you people. Doesn't seem like much of a community to me. And when you hear that, just let me just give a very quick aside. But whenever you hear the such and such community, it's almost always being used in a manipulative way. Whenever somebody invokes the word community about something that isn't an actual community, 
something that isn't a group of people who live among each other and have to coexist in their immediate environment to survive. Anything that uses the word community that is not that is generally manipulative. It is generally either seeking power itself or using that to or using that to like levy power. It's just it's it's being used to levy power one way or another. Whenever you hear the the scientific community says uh, the end of the Kali Yuga is coming very soon. I don't know. It just you tend to hear the word community abused. But hey, it's not the end of the world. It's not the end of the world that they do that. But yeah, just to get back to finish that point, it's it's not that I hate scientists. I I obviously don't. I, I've mentioned on here before, even if it is just a disclaimer, that I have a lot of respect for the scientific process, and that includes scientists themselves. But there is this tendency in our society to sanctify scientists and to give them credit when something goes well or is used to a positive end, but then to allow them to escape scot-free, to wash their hands of outcomes that are a result of science, that are a result of the scientific process, that have negative consequences. There's this idea that it's like, praise them when it goes well, let them sneak out the back door when it doesn't. And then they act like they're shaking their finger at us. You people need to, uh, you people need to stop driving cars so much and eating meats. You people need to watch your carbon emissions. Why do we have carbon emissions, scientists? Who gave us the technology? Who gave us the innovation? Who gave us the means to have these big bad carbon emissions? Who gave us this opportunity? to do destructive crap. Huh, I wonder where we learned how to do this. Oh, you didn't mean for us to do it that way. Oh, okay. I get it. I see how this works. Oh, you've discovered that climate change is imminent and we're past the point of no return. Meanwhile, I shouldn't go listen to a priest... I shouldn't go listen to a Catholic priest who tells us that, oh, hey, the book of Revelations is real, and it's going to play out in our lifetime. So we must repent now. Oh, it turns out there's a guy somewhere else who wears a different outfit. He's in a black outfit with a little strip of white around his neck. Meanwhile, you're in all white with a black tie hanging down the front of your chest, and you're so different. Even though you've reached the same conclusion, you're somehow more right. Obviously a little bit of a rant here. Because the sanctimony of it rubs me the wrong way. And the inability for people to recognize the common lineage of these eschatological thoughts... And yeah, that's a bunch of mumba-jumba. The universality of eschatological thinking. I know that just sounds like a bunch of nonsense to anybody. But it's true. It's a human universal. 
And the beauty of human universals is that when we recognize them, we no longer have to fight against them. That's one of the reasons I'm so interested in human universals, especially the ones that are pretty far out there, like the idea that our world is going to end and the fact that we have so many different paths and ideas and equations that we do that all lead us to that conclusion in so many different time periods. The fact that we inevitably have a priest class that informs us of this as well. And that they're not supposed to be questioned. The fact that no matter what, whether it's a scientist, a priest, a shaman, it doesn't seem to matter. We have a class of people who dictates this to us and we take it very seriously. Whether it's scripture or a published, a peer-reviewed published paper in a scientific journal, it's the same thing. And the thing about human universals is that when you compare two things, like if you find two human universals, like if you find two things that are the same in different times and places, it's easy to take that and say, well, that means it's all BS. Oh, because two religions came to the same conclusion in different times and places, and they didn't have any influence over each other. That means they're both bogus. Because the people who believe in that religion think that their way is the only way. And, you know, I'm, I'm far more um, syncretic, you know, in my approach, where I don't necessarily believe one religion is absolute. But when you look and you find these universals across not just one, not just two, but countless different sources in different times and places, that doesn't lead you to the conclusion that it's all bullshit. It leads you to the conclusion that these are all channeling the same thing. They're interpreting it slightly differently. There's a difference in interpretation, but they're all channeling the same essence. And where is it coming from? I can't answer that. But the more universals you find, the more universal something is, the harder it is to dismiss. And because of that, I might joke about climate change, because I joke about everything. I might joke about it, but that doesn't mean I dismiss it. But I will shake a finger at somebody who's trying to act like climate change is somehow different from every other apocalyptic prophecy, because I take those seriously too. And the absurdity of the times in which we live are highlighted perfectly by the fact that you have somebody who calls themselves a conservative, believes in the Christian scripture, and says that an apocalyptic event is imminent, so you must repent, and that person is considered the mortal enemy of this person who is secular, atheistic, and they believe that the scientific journals have found the truth, which is that an apocalyptic event is imminent and we must repent. And it's like, you guys are saying the same exact thing. And you appear to have come to that conclusion in different ways. And your idea of repenting is different in some ways. Is it really, though? I don't know. I don't know that I don't know that it's that different when it comes down to it. 
being a less destructive person seems to be at the heart of both you know, being a less destructive person seems to be at the heart of both Christianity and secular morality and ethics. So I don't know that the idea of repenting is that different on one side or the other. But the point is that they are both asking everybody to repent in the face of some sort of inevitable apocalyptic conclusion to the world that we all know and love. And those two sides are arguing, meanwhile, there's a whole history. And we don't even know what the people before recorded history said about it. But you know what? If I was a betting man, if I was a gambler, I would bet that people before recorded history were saying the same exact things. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free. So take.